This is Curious Minnesota, a Star Tribune project that sends staff from the state's largest newsroom hunting for the answers to great questions we receive from you, our readers. We're here to answer everything you want to know about the state's people, places, and culture. Welcome to Curious Minnesota. I'm your host, Eric Roper. We have an exciting show for you today, and it's a little different from our normal routine here on the podcast. We are heading north to the Iron Range to see how some of the state's most massive machines turn Minnesota rocks into the key ingredients for American steel. This trip stemmed from a question that the Munson family of St. Louis Park submitted to Curious Minnesota back in January. They wanted us to find the state's largest machine, a question that was inspired by a Transformers toy that nine-year-old Julian Munson had received for Christmas. Now, this was obviously not a simple question, so I joined the Munsons one evening for one of their dinner conversations about what even constitutes a machine. So, your name is Julian, right? Yeah. All right, so Julian, tell us a little bit about what's the question that we're answering today? What's the, uh, what, what, are we, what are we going in search of the answer for? What's the biggest machine in Minnesota? So we're going to look for the largest machine. How do we define a machine? Like if we think of there's trucks, there's factories, there's computers, what are you looking for when you say largest machine? A really, really, really big machine. All right, that's good. It's nice and vague. That'll help us uh, get a, a wide, a wide idea. So I went hunting for answers and developed a list of the state's largest machines, ranging from the Duluth lift bridge to the elevators in downtown Minneapolis's skyscrapers. But we discovered that the biggest concentration of these mechanical mammoths was on the Iron Range. You can see the full list in the story that I will link to in the show notes. So after our story ran, Pittsburgh-based U.S. Steel invited the Munsons and myself to come see these machines up close at their Keytac Taconite mine, located 3.5 hours north of Minneapolis in Keewatin, Minnesota. Keytac is one of U.S. Steel's two Minnesota-based taconite facilities. To be honest, I was eager to wake up at the crack of dawn and make this long drive north because recently I've realized that the Iron Ring is a bigger deal than I once thought. The rocks that are buried beneath northern Minnesota essentially fueled America's success story as the country's largest source of iron ore. What do I mean by that? Well, let's just talk about this for a second. Cities like my hometown of New York City grew upward in the early 1900s with the help of steel beams that were packed with iron from the mighty Mesabi Range. Minnesota mines also supplied much of the raw material for the steel artillery that America sent overseas in World War II, a topic that we have written about in the Curious Minnesota column. Even today, American steel production still relies on the range as its primary source of virgin domestic iron. It is now concentrated from lower grade ore, known as taconite, than what was available on the range a century ago. But this place is also just an adventure to visit. For kids, it's like seeing Tonka toys come to life. Our tour began in a pickup truck driven into the mine's undulating terrain by mining operations manager Steve Andry. I was joined in the truck by Amy Munson and her daughter Delphine. So Amy, have you guys been dis discussing the trip for a while? We have. We've been talking about it and 
thinking about what they're going to get to see. They're excited about the big trucks. <laughs> you guys have your spirited dinner conversations about the machines still. We do. We do. I'm excited to see the processing plant, though. Okay. I think that's going to be really cool. Why so? I just love a factory tour. <laughs> it's just interesting. You just learn what really is behind the things that you use every day, like our stainless steel water bottles. It's yep. got to start somewhere. We began our tour looking out at the expansive, multi-level pit where the iron is pulled from the ground. Oh, wow, look at that. It's like the Grand Canyon or something. I don't yes. know. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's what we said when we were driving up and we drove through that we're like, it's like Minnesota's Grand Canyon. Yeah. 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 The land here is constantly changing as the mining follows the underground ore deposits. And one day, when the mine closes and they stop pumping groundwater, it will become a lake. Here's Steve Andry. Like when you work here, actually, you'll come and things will look different on Monday from when you left on Friday. <laughs> so how does this work? Taconite mining begins with carefully orchestrated explosions, which occur roughly every week at Keytac. Tall drills excavate holes in neat rows, which we could see in the distance as we looked out over the pit. So you see straight below us there, yeah, you see all the little mounds in a row? That's a blast pattern. So each one of those holes is a drill hole. It's 16 inches in diameter. And about 40 feet deep yep and then we'll we'll fill that with explosives and then the top 15 to 20 feet gets filled with what we call stemming which is rock that we put in to contain those explosives because otherwise all the energy would just go up far in the distance were the behemoth trucks that the kids had been eager to see here's julian munson they look like an ordinary truck from all the way over here but we know that they're not yeah the scale of these vehicles soon came into focus as we shuttled to one of the trucks and Julian and his sister Delphine climbed up to the cab, 18 feet off the ground. What do you think of the truck, Delphine? What? What do you think of the truck? It's really big and cool. Is it as big as you imagined it would be? Uh, it's bigger. Feeding all these dump trucks are even larger excavators, which are the biggest portable machines on the range. Their immense size grew clear as we climbed the several-story staircase of the Komatsu PC-7000 excavator, walking past 11-foot-tall tracks and the beefy hydraulic system that keep it moving. The other voice with me in this clip is Nathan Munson. We're going, we're past the second floor, now we're going to the third floor of the excavator. Wow. Nathan, what do you think of this machine? It'd clean the driveway real fast. <laughs> sure, yeah, you'd probably get rid of your driveway real fast. <laughs> wow. This is massive. Just massive. The best spot to take pictures of the excavator was down below at the towering bucket, which takes so much abuse from chewing up the earth that its dinosaur-like teeth must regularly be replaced. This bucket has enough capacity to pick up the equivalent of 44 washing machines with each scoop. I talked about this with Mike Bach, who is KeyTac's Director of Operational Readiness. And so this is the largest portable machine on site, right? Or these types of machines? 
Yes, this is our largest piece of mining equipment. Um, like I mentioned before, it's got a, a 44 cubic yard bucket on it, which is the biggest bucket on the iron range. And uh, it, as far as productivity in tons per hour, it's the, the highest out of any piece of equipment we own. These machines work 24 hours a day, bringing ore from the pit to the pellet plant, which also runs continuously. So why is that? Well, it's partly because of their hefty price tag. The high-tech excavators and dump trucks cost about $10 million and $5 million, respectively. The truck tires alone cost roughly $40,000 a piece, and there are six of them per truck. So this runs 24 hours a day, they were saying? Yes, we run 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365. So what's going on here at like midnight? Hauling material. The, the shovels, the trucks, it's all still operating. Wow, and, why, and is that just because there's so much demand for it that it's more efficient to do it that way? It's more the, the capital, so you know all this equipment is extremely expensive, so you can't afford to have enough equipment to make your production in a 12-hour shift. You have to be utilizing all of that equipment as much as you can. Iron ore from the range is shipped by boat and train to steel mills around the country and beyond, where it is melted down to make steel. Now, in the early 20th century, iron-rich ore was so plentiful on the iron range that it could be shipped in its natural state to steel plants. Here is Mike Bach again, and it's worth pointing out that Mike's father is former state senator Tom Bach. There was very little processing that went on back then. They dug it out of the ground. It was hematite, which is natural ore. It's non-magnetic. It was 60-plus percent iron right out of the ground. And as the amount of the hematite reserves waned, companies were trying to figure out, and the University of Minnesota, how are we going to continue iron mining? So as Mike mentioned there, that natural ore was eventually depleted under the intense demand of America's growth and the World War II. And that could have been the end of the story. But researchers found a way to concentrate the lower grade taconite, which is roughly 20 to 30 percent iron, into a viable substitute for that natural ore. At KeyTech, this happens at a large factory beside the pit, which contains the facility's most massive machines. Tim Kalish oversees the pellet plant, and he briefed our tour as we put on our safety gear. Keep your hands close to your body and try not to touch anything spinning. It's, I mean, it's, it's real. It, it can be dangerous, so. We soon understood what he meant as we gazed at a room full of rotating grinding mills that pulverized the ore into a powder. They do this by tumbling the ore with 5-inch steel balls and water inside a cylinder that is 27 feet in diameter. It takes 7,000 horsepower motors to run these mills. This is Steve Andrew. Inside of there is where the rock is being fed into, and then there's those balls that are all tumbling inside of there, grinding the, the rock up into that face powder consistency. Yeah, the whole ground is vibrating here, and we're walking by this enormous spinning, several spinning cylinders. We followed a maze of catwalks to the next stop, a powerful magnet that separates the ferrous iron material from the other minerals, like silica. Here's Tim Kalish. Gets to the bottom, the magnet pulls it up and basically dumps it on the other side. So you got one side's good material, one side's bad material. So if you had a 
piece of metal on you and you got that far away, that magnet's so strong it would suck your arm right in. The iron-rich slurry is sent to an adjoining building where a filtering machine transforms it into a cake-like substance. It's now ready for the balling drums, which turn the cake into soft, marble-sized pellets called green balls. They're called green because they're about to be baked in a multi-stage furnace and then a fiery kiln that reaches upwards of 2,300 degrees. The kiln itself is a very large machine. It's 130 feet long, and it's a cylinder that rotates, which is a little hard to imagine, but take it my word for it. It's very large. And when you go up to the viewing window, you can see what's happening inside. And essentially, before you put on the uh, the welding mask that they have on offer there, it's really just glowing yellow from the hot fire. Here's Tim Kalish. Why is it rotating like that? So it's spinning. All the pellets are coming down it, so it spins, so they roll down. And then they drop into this cooler, and this is where we fill it back up, like three feet high. And they just they go around on a pallet, and we take uh, cold air from the outside and cool them down. So some of the balls inside the kiln break up, and they make dust, which then fuses together into large chunks of slag in the kiln. This is a problem. These large chunks occasionally fall into the subsequent cooling chamber, which can interrupt or damage equipment, and that causes costly delays. This is where the shotgun comes into play. I noticed several extra-large shotgun shells lodged into the grate of our observation platform. And I was informed that to keep the process moving, workers sometimes use a shotgun to break up the pesky chunks. If it falls in, it'll plug up the conveyor belts below. So they, when it comes around the cooler, they shoot it with an 8-gauge slug. Pretty cool. Those are big shells. Oh, yeah. <laughs> At the end of the process, the cool taconite pellets are roughly 66% iron, and they're ready to be fed into a blast furnace at a steel mill. Back in the conference room where we started the day, I asked Bach what message he hoped to convey from the tour. Well, the biggest thing is people seem to have lost connection with where things come from. They don't come from the store. They come from the ground that's grown or it's mined. And the example we gave earlier was a little your pickle jar. I mean, people don't even realize like that was a rock at one point in time and it comes from here. So mining is a very necessary part of having a society like this. All right, that's it for today's show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a really fun experience for me as a reporter to go and see all this, and I think that the Munson family had a fun time as well. Uh, if you have feedback about this show or you just want to submit a question to us uh, to answer in the column and on the podcast, send us a note at curious at startribune.com. And as always, we could really use your help spreading the word about this podcast. So if you're enjoying the show, please tell a friend about it. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Curious Minnesota. We want to hear from you. Ask questions and read more stories online at startribune.com backslash curious. Our show is recorded at the Star Tribune's headquarters in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. And our music is produced by Matt Gilmer. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes or leave a review. And until next time, stay curious. <laughs>